Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 78, Interphilosophos Occultorum Curiosior, Numinius of Apamea. We are delighted to be discussing the life and works of the great Numenius. This is a philosopher about whom frustratingly little is known, only fragments of his work survive, but we know enough to be able to say for sure that he made a huge impact in his day and through the authors he influenced, whose work does survive in both the Christian and the traditionally religious pagan Platonist traditions, had a seminal influence on Western esotericism. So let's cover the basics first, and then move on to Numenius's perennialism and his esotericism, both very interesting and in some ways unique from the perspective of the development of Middle Platonist esotericism in the second century. Now, within the framework of esoteric revealed wisdom that Numenius constructs, expounds some really heavy metaphysics, so heavy, in fact, that we have reserved a second episode just to discuss them. So in this episode, we'll cover Numenius the thinker, and in the next, the content of his thought. It's an artificial distinction, but useful for the purposes of exposition. In terms of his biography, we know almost nothing about Numenius. Most ancient authors associate him with the city of Apamea in Syria. But one late testimony, John Lydus, writing in the 6th century, calls him the Roman it's been speculated that he was from Apamea originally and later went to teach in Rome or something like that, but we don't really know. Anyway, the Apamean connection seems to be pretty certain, whatever the Roman connection means. We're sure he lived in the second century, and probably the slightly later Platonist author Atticus, um, who can be dated a little bit better than Numenius, has some stuff in his work which he got from Numenius. So we can say Numenius wrote a bit earlier than Atticus, and thus probably middle of the second century is what we want to look at for his Floruit. The first surviving author to quote Numenius is Clement of Alexandria in his Stromates or Stromata, a wonderful work of esoteric Christian philosophy, which we shall of course be covering in the podcast. And Clement died in 215 CE. So again, second century. So, a writer in Greek from Syria in the second century. What did he write? We have the titles of some works of Numenius. He wrote an On the Good in at least six books. Now, this is heavy metaphysics with a lot of apophatic writing to interest us here at the Schwepp. It was a dialogue, but seemingly with just two interlocutors, an expounder and a stranger who kind of nods and agrees or asks questions at appropriate times, reminding John Dillon more of a hermetic dialogue than a platonic dialogue. And I think that this shows a good nose for genre. As we hope to bring out in this and the following episode, there is a tension in Numenius, or at least we perceive a tension, maybe there is no tension in the original context, but anyway, between what we might call a priori philosophic method and revelatory wisdom. Both exist side by side, but at the end of the day, the truth has been revealed already, and the philosopher's task is to expound it. Getting back to his works, Numenius also wrote an On the Indestructibility of the Soul, of which one fragment survives, 
number 29. He also wrote an On Number, which doubtless was full of Neopythagorean lore, but is sadly lost. A work called On Place, which sounds really intriguing, but is also lost, unfortunately. And last but not least, lost, a work called Epops. The title means Hoopoo, a bird whose zoological name is the wonderful Upupa Epops, by the way. But we can speculate that maybe the subject matter of the Epops was something to do with initiation, since as listeners will recall from episode 13, and here and there throughout the podcast, the culmination of the Eleusinian mysteries and of other cults was the Epoptea, the viewing, something which Platonism, as we know, applied to the vision of reality and of the forms, which was the privilege of the true philosopher initiate. We also have some fragments from a work entitled On the Academy's Betrayal of Plato, an essay in revisionist philosophic doxography, to which we shall return, and one fragment, number 23, from On Plato's Esoterica, to which we shall definitely return. We also have evidence of esoteric reading activity on Numenius's part, to which we cannot assign titles. We know from Proclus that Numenius wrote an exegesis of Plato's myth of Ur. Uh, this testimony is preserved as fragment 35. And Porphyry, in his commentary on the Cave of the Nymphs from Homer's Odyssey, uses Numenius a lot for astronomical, astrological matters, which may mean that Numenius had also commented on the esoteric meaning of this passage in Homer. Oregon tells us that Numenius also interpreted Christian and Jewish material allegorically or esoterically, according to the definition of the term we use in the podcast. See episode 26 for more on what we mean by esoteric interpretation. So the general picture we get from all these little scattered testimonies is that Numenius was very, very interested in the process of esoteric exegesis. He was reading Jewish material, he was reading Plato, he was reading Homer, he was reading all kinds of stuff and drawing out of it philosophic hidden meanings, something we've seen quite a bit in our coverage of the Middle Platonist tradition. Now, Numenius was highly regarded in antiquity, but we get a range of characterizations of his philosophy. So Proclus puts him first on a list of the leading Platonists. And others too call him a Platonist, or imply that he's primarily a follower of Plato, which is what modern scholars would say as well. However, the majority opinion in antiquity is that Numenius is a Pythagorean. Now, we can never tell what that's supposed to mean exactly in ancient sources, but we'll return to it because, as it turns out, Numenius himself sort of calls himself a Pythagorean, or at least says that Plato is a Pythagorean. But we should cite a passage here in the translation of Petty, incidentally, whose translation and numbering of the fragments we're using throughout this episode. This is a passage from Macrobius, the 5th century Platonist philosopher and man of letters. We cited this testimony of Macrobius actually in the title to this episode, just to give it a little bit of a classy Latin, describing Numenius as, quote, rather curious about occult matters. So this passage tells us a lot about how Macrobius saw Numenius, but also gives us some light into Numenius's practice of esotericism, to which we shall return. So dig, Macrobius is talking about how the gods 
send dream messages to mortals. Quote, Again, dreams disclosed the displeasure of the divinities to Numenius, who among philosophers is rather curious about occult matters. Because while interpreting the Eleusinian rites, he made them public. It seemed to him that he saw the Eleusinian goddesses themselves standing in harlots' clothing before an open brothel. And when he marveled at this and demanded the reason for a disgrace not befitting divinity, they responded in anger that they had been violently dragged away from the sanctuary of their chastity and had been prostituted to all comers by Numenius himself. Now, we don't have any idea where Macrobius gets this anecdote from, but what are we to make of the idea that Numenius profaned the Eleusinian mysteries by interpreting them? Well, we'll come back to this nearer the end of the episode when we've discussed Numenius's esotericism because this discussion will give us more to go on. As for, quote, rather curious about occult matters, end of quote, there is probably some overlap here with modern ideas about what the term occult is supposed to mean. Numenius was very interested in astronomy, astrology, which in itself is just normal scientific interest in his day, but the fact that he makes astral matters an integral part of his theory of the soul, as we'll discuss next episode, along with the multiple attestations of exegesis of mystery cults, alluded to in this testimony from Macrobius and elsewhere. And I think also we can probably safely conjecture he had some arithmological speculations, maybe in the lost tract on number. All of this might give us an idea of what Macrobius means by occult here. At any rate, the astral lore Macrobius elsewhere cites from Numenius makes the Zodiac and the Milky Way essential stopping points on the soul's journey down into the body, which one might perhaps have seen as an occult doctrine in the 5th century. It's certainly an abstruse doctrine. We can adduce Proclus here, who describes Numenius as, quote, stitching the Platonic sayings to astrological lore and this to the teachings of the mysteries, end of quote. So whether we want to call this occult or not, you get the idea, maybe, of the kind of thought Numenius is engaged in. There's a lot of kind of recondite lore in his work. At any rate, Moving on, but still talking about Numenius's um, reputation in antiquity and his effect on later philosophy, Numenius was a huge influence on Plotinus and Porphyry, the great third century Platonist and his greatest student. And that's the primary reason everyone is interested in him in the history of philosophy in the first place. Oh, and of course, his thought is intimately linked with that found in the Chaldean oracles, which also makes him interesting to a more, shall we say, elite circle of philosophic historians. <laughs> fragment 17 of Numenius either quotes Fragment 7 of the Oracles, or Fragment 7 of the Oracles is quoting him. With slight changes in wording, as you'd expect, going from prose to hexameter verse, or going from hexameter verse to prose, but this is the same idea, for sure in both texts. So we can say that Numenius and the oracles exist in many ways in the same thought world. Now, Numenius was also used a lot by early philosophic Christians, Oregon and Eusebius notably, who found in his doctrine of the triple god something that they could use for their own Trinitarian purposes. 
as we shall see, Numenius also dug Moses, and these Christians liked citing him for that reason as well. So he's significant for early Christian theology in a number of ways, and a lot of what we have of him is preserved by these Christian authors. Now moving to the present day, everyone nowadays agrees in calling Numenius a Middle Platonist, but that doesn't tell us too much, as attentive listeners to our interview with John Dillon in episode 62 will be aware. It's just kind of a catch-all category for this very um, diverse field of philosophers who, in the first and second centuries who are reading Plato as a dogmatic author, an author with a teaching, but beyond that, anything goes. We can go further while still being a bit vague and say that Numenius belongs not so much to the strand of Middle Platonism, which we've seen kind of in Plutarch, but which we see really clearly in authors like Alcinous and Atticus, who are very straightforwardly philosophical, and they don't really feature in this podcast much at all because they're so straightforwardly philosophical. Numenius is rather in the current occupied by Apuleius in his darker, more folkloric moments, by the Chaldean oracles, the Hermetica, and the Platonizing Gnostics. Unlike these later authors, though, Numenius writes in the genre of philosophy, not primarily of revealed wisdom. And yet revealed wisdom, as we shall see, is one of his primary concerns in a way. So he's a very interesting author. He reminds us of the Chaldean oracles and of Plato, in sort of equal measure. And his thought is full of logical reasoning, but also likes to push logical reasoning to its limits and try to see what's beyond the limits. I also think Gregory Shaw makes a very good point when he describes Numenius as, quote, a mysterious and fundamentally important religious thinker of the second century CE. We're definitely in philosophy as a genre here, but there's no way to separate philosophy from religion in a clear-cut way when dealing with Numenius. Turning to how Numenius presents himself, however, Shaw is wrong when he claims that Numenius defined himself as a, quote, Pythagorean Platonist. In fact, we have a lot of materials which allow us to say pretty much exactly how Numenius did define himself, and it's not exactly Pythagorean Platonist. It's more like follower of the perennial wisdom founded in the teachings of the wise barbarian sages, which Pythagoras first expounded to the Greeks, followed by his disciples Socrates and Plato. Numenius, in other words, is a fully-fledged Platonist perennialist. We call him a Platonist in scholarship because his primary exegetic debt is unquestionably to Plato. He's reading Plato, he's quoting Plato, he's playing with ideas found in Plato all the time. But he frames what he's doing on a much grander and more esoteric platform. So the way he constructs the tradition to which he belongs is much grander than would be implied by something like Platonism. Let's cite fragment one of Numenius in this context. This fragment is taken from Eusebius quoting Numenius's book on the good, and it's a wonderful testimony to the reading methodology of a Middle Platonist perennialist. How does one go about writing a philosophic treatise on the good? Well, quote, It will be necessary, after discussing and drawing conclusions from the testimonies of Plato, to go back further and bind them together with the statements of Pythagoras. 
and to invoke the nations of renown, citing the initiations, dogmas, and fundamental rituals which they celebrated in agreement with Plato, all those which the Brahmans, Jews, Magi, and Egyptians have established. End of quote. So we see here that the fundamental touchstone of authority, at least in the present discussion of ontology, is Plato. And indeed, the entirety of what we've, we have from On the Good shows the fundamental stamp of Plato's Timaeus myth and of the discussion of the form of the good in The Republic. See episodes 27, 30, and 31 of this podcast if you need reminding about these essential Platonic texts. But Plato is to be bound together by Pythagoras, and the whole philosophic dogma thus isolated, this sort of Pythagorean Platonic tradition, can be further elucidated with reference to the religious institutions of approved barbarians. As in Plutarch, the wise barbarians have a philosophy of their own, but the way they sort of transmit it is hidden within their ritual practices and religious teachings. But notice that unlike in Plutarch, the Jews have made it to the shortlist of wise barbarian nations, whose rites hold a wisdom in accord with the Pythagorean Platonic teachings. And we know from Oregon that Numenius was reading the Jewish texts and interpreting them esoterically. We're dealing here, as doubtless in the case of the Egyptian and other doctrines, with philosophic truth wisely hidden within religious ritual by the nomothetes of the barbarians. And Moses is, of course, a great nomothete in the, to the Greek way of thinking, as we've seen already in Philo of Alexandria. When he tries to express what Moses is in Greek, he says, well, he's a nomothete. Indeed, Eusebius cites Numenius as having asked, quote, what is Plato but Moses speaking Attic Greek? End of quote. Now, this quote seems to indicate a level of respect for the perennial tradition, which in theory at least places barbarian wisdom and Plato's wisdom on an equal footing. Now, which Pythagoras does Numenius mean when he says Pythagoras in this quote? Well, we actually don't know for sure, but the likes of Moderatus and Eudorus, both first century metaphysicians who posited a monad as a first principle, a dyad as a second principle, and so forth, are probably the sort of tradition that is meant here. The tradition generally referred to in a vague way as Neo-Pythagorean philosophy, since we can't really say enough about it to be more specific than that. As we know, the historical Pythagoras didn't write anything, or if he did write anything, this anyway wouldn't probably be what Numenius was referring to. He's going to be referring to this later tradition and or to the pseudo-Pythagorean texts of the Hellenistic period. Whatever the Pythagorean teachings are that he sees as the fundamental ones by which Plato's thought must be judged, and probably here we're dealing with monad-dyad metaphysics as a major Pythagorean sort of touchstone that we also find in Plato. And also, we should mention here the Pseudoplatonic second letter, which is widely regarded as a Neo-Pythagorean forgery, probably of the Hellenistic period. And in that letter, there is the mysterious passage about the king of all, which is a major source for Numenius's three gods doctrine. We'll talk about that in some detail in the next episode. At any rate, it is clear that Pythagoras is the master of the lineage to which Plato belongs for Numenius. It is clear that Pythagoras taught a monad and a dyad, 
because we find that all throughout Numenius. And it's clear that Pythagoras taught the three gods doctrine. So in fragment 25 from On the Academic's Betrayal of Plato, we learn that Plato was not superior to Pythagoras, but perhaps not inferior either. And that's a kind of a normal take on things in, in later Platonism. But this is interesting. Socrates, although he inspired a number of different philosophers who misunderstood his teaching, in fact, philosophized about three gods. In other words, Socrates also was a Pythagorean. So three gods is the proper, essentially Pythagorean position to take. Let's quote what Numenius says next in fragment 25. Quote, Plato was a Pythagorean. He knew that Socrates dispensed these same teachings from no other source but that one, i.e. Pythagoras, and that he, Socrates, had spoken in full awareness of this. In this way, therefore, he too bound things together, yet neither in a customary nor an obvious manner. And after arranging each detail in the way he considered most suitable and concealing himself in between clarity and obscurity, he wrote securely. Now, fragments 24 to 28 of Numenius are all excerpts from Eusebius from this wonderful work on the academic's betrayal of Plato, which is a precious window on how an esoteric reader of Plato as a dogmatic teacher of a solid doctrine, in this case a doctrine of three gods, could diss the entire earlier philosophical tradition stemming from Plato, like the Skeptical Academy, as dolts or idiots, or worse, corrupt uh, scumbags who adulterated Plato for their monetary gain and so forth. Do check these fragments out, 24 to 28, as there's some really great stuff in them. But for our purposes now, we need to home in on the last line of this quote. Concealing himself in between clarity and obscurity. Epikrupsamnos en mezo tu dela enai kai me dela. He wrote securely, end of quote. This is an important line. We've already seen in Plutarch how he conceived of Plato as writing esoterically, but here we have a proper methodological program for Plato's esotericism. He was intentionally unclear, but not too unclear, so as to keep himself safe, but at the same time to express the truth to those capable of proper exegesis. Now, the example of Socrates is probably being referred to here in terms of safety, because he was, of course, put to death by the Athenians for destruction his disturbing ideas about religion. Plato was, in other words, hiding his true meaning in plain sight for those with the wit to find it. This model of esoteric writing, Ceteris Paribus, is familiar in modern times from the theories of Leo Strauss. And this passage of Numenius provides us with a very rare gem of insight into how Platonist esoteric readers of Plato thought his written esotericism worked and why he wrote esoterically in the first place. He's writing esoterically because he's afraid for his life, and he does it by using a kind of stylistic obscurity which allows him to hide the truth within the written word. We should also note in the context of On the Academic's Betrayal of Plato that Numenius is doing something very interesting here. He's arguing that most of the philosophic tradition stemming from Plato, and he even has some fairly harsh words for Xenocrates, who was Plato's second successor in the Old Academy, so someone you might expect a Numenius to praise. He's doing this dissing based on a 
kind of back-to-Plato platform. Plato's thought has been corrupted over the centuries, and we need to go back to the original sources and purify it. And especially he wants to purify it from Stoic influence and the influence of other kind of what he regards as divergent philosophical impurities. But the sources to which Numenius wants to return, of course, are not just Plato as he might be read today, like a strict reading of the dialogues, maybe with a little bit of the letters and perhaps the unwritten doctrines thrown in. The sources are, in the first instance, Plato read as an esoteric author whose works lay out a Numenian metaphysics, no surprise there, but also as one who's part of a much longer perennial tradition, which is also to be read esoterically. When we get to the Renaissance Platonists, Ficino, Pico, and the rest, we will actually see a similar methodology, only their concern was to reinstitute the true primordial Christianity. So in both cases, and this is why I draw this parallel here, esoteric interpretation of a notional primordial tradition is used as a critical tool for redefining a current living tradition. But this redefinition is not framed as a redefinition, it's framed as a purification back to the original form, a kind of return to the sources. Our sole fragment surviving from the work on the esoteric doctrines of Plato, and oh how we wish we had this work in its entirety, is cited by Eusebius, fragment 23. Here we get a very similar story of esotericism for safety as we saw in fragment 25. So Plato wanted to write about the problems that he saw with the traditional religion practiced by the Athenians, with gods who commit incest and eat their children and stuff like that. This, these traditional stories made a lot of philosophers scratch their heads and a lot of philosophers said, okay, this stuff is either to be chucked out or we need to find a way of making it philosophically acceptable. But Plato couldn't get away with criticizing the traditional stories openly. Look what happened to Socrates when he did so. But Plato loved the truth too much to remain silent, so he found a way. He invented the character of Euthyphro, and you can go read the Platonic dialogue Euthyphro and find out all about this gentleman. Euthyphro, in Numenius's reading, stands for the Athenians and their stupid theology. And then Plato is able to depict Socrates as sort of outwitting Euthyphro at every turn and making him look stupid on the topic of theology. So here again, we have a very important testimony to the way in which an esoteric reading strategy, reading Plato as though he has a hidden message, allows our author Numenius to find what he wants to find in Plato. So Plato wrote esoterically. So too, we can conclude, did the wise barbarians, although they weren't writing exactly, they were rather founding initiations and other religious observances with hidden philosophic meanings to be excavated by interpreters like Numenius. We can conclude that this was Numenius's model of barbarian wisdom from fragment one alongside comparative evidence like that of the late Stoics Cornutus and Posidonius and of Platonists like Philo, whose Moses, as we've seen, was an esoteric nomothete par excellence, and Plutarch, whose approach in On Isis and Osiris we have discussed. And we could also adduce here Celsus, whom we haven't met yet in the podcast, but we will. Significant here is the use the Christian writer Oregon will make of Numenius. Oregon, himself a lover of deeply esoteric hermeneutics, drawing on the lead set by Philo of Alexandria, tells us that Numenius interpreted a story about Jesus 
allegorically or esoterically. Take your pick for translating the verb tropologeo. And we have seen as well a number of references to Numenius's allegorization or philosophical exegesis of mystery cults. And seemingly based on Macrobius's testimony, Numenius even went so far as to give the true philosophic meaning of the Eleusinian mysteries. Now, this is very interesting. One thing that strikes the reader of Platonist esoteric interpretation is how rare it is to find genuine secrecy being exercised. Despite all the references to aporreta, arreta, mysteria, and so forth, all terms which in their original cultic context mean something that really cannot be discussed outside of initiated circles, in other words, a, a secret, an esoteric secret, we have Platonist authors revealing these aporreta all the time in written form. Now, Plutarch, publicly dissecting the myth of Isis and Osiris, and even discussing some mystic initiatory material from the cult, is one thing. Apuleius's elusive description of the initiation into the cult of Isis at the end of the Metamorphoses is another thing. But Eleusis, this is something that would only be approached by an author with either a great deal of temerity or a strong belief that his own esoteric writing would somehow preserve the secrets of the mysteries intact. I think it's safe to say that to a Greek audience, you could pretty much say what you wanted about the mysteries of Isis, even though they were a very popular cult among Greeks. But to say everything that could be said about the initiation at Eleusis would be a very, very risky thing to do. We can only speculate here because we don't have the work in which Numenius expounded the meaning of the mysteries, such that the goddesses Persephone and Demeter visited him in a dream, dressed as prostitutes, saying, you have put us here with your philosophic exegesis. But there are a few interesting possibilities. One, and I just throw this out because I think it's an interesting speculation, is that it was in the work Epops that he did this um, philosophic reading of the mysteries. There's no evidence for it other than the name Epops and the fact that it is probably some kind of punning allusion to initiation. But since we don't have the Epops, it's nice to speculate that it had some really juicy material in it. Let's say that he wrote a philosophical exegesis of the meaning of the sacred myth the Hieros Logos, from Eleusis. And perhaps we can assume that he was also himself initiated, or at least kind of had an account of what went on in the ceremonies at Eleusis. He also interpreted the ritual. So something along the vague lines of Plutarch's On Isis and Osiris, perhaps, but Eleusinian. If we assume something like this, Numenius either revealed some things in a way, perhaps imitating Plato and writing between clarity and unclarity, which attempted to hide his true meaning from the casual reader while preserving it for the philosophic adept. And the philosophic adept, for someone like Numenius, would be by virtue of being a philosophic adept, the definition of a true initiate. So regardless of whether or not he was actually initiated into the Eleusinian cult, he or she, I should say, it may be that Numenius took a dim view of aspects of the traditional cult. As we've seen, he took a dim view of traditional Greek stories about the gods, and thought they could rightly be criticized by philosophers. So perhaps he did something like that in this mysterious work. Perhaps he said a bit too much for some people's sensibilities about what went on in the Eleusinian sanctuary, maybe because he thought it wasn't important. Who knows? At any rate, we can say for sure 
that ancient esoteric interpreters of mysteries in the Platonist tradition often show little compunction at times about revealing certain things which probably were considered secret by at least some initiates. As we mentioned in our discussion of the Chaldean oracles, the words of power associated with those seem to have been an exception here. No surviving Platonist even hints at what they were. But in terms of the more old-school traditional sanctuary-based initiations, Platonists seem to have often had a fairly loose tongue. Now, this is all intriguing speculation, of course, but it points to a strong and important tension which definitely exists with the kind of hermeneutics of a perennial tradition which we find in ancient Platonism. And this is an interpretive dynamic that runs through the history of Western esotericism as a whole. To wit, by writing esoteric works of interpretation, we are in fact revealing what should in theory remain hidden. Now, Numenius's hidden wisdom is fascinating. It involves a first principle which is radically unknowable and unsayable, truly transcendent. And from this first principle derives, or emanates, a subsidiary divine intellect. And from that, another divine intellect. Three gods. The human soul descends from the immaterial world of these intellects through the heavenly spheres and into a mortal body, but remains essentially of the same nature as the intellectual gods themselves. This is, as we mentioned, heavy stuff. So join us next time as we delve into the metaphysics of Numenius. Until then, stay esoteric, unlike the Eleusinian goddesses, once Numenius had had his way with them.